Today on The Lab Report, we have on Carnivore MD, Dr. Paul Saladino. And you might want to hold on to your skulls because he might just turn everything upside down. Wow. In a good way. And blow your mind. Right. Hang on to your skull. <laughs> the world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Oh, I can't wait. I know. This is going to be something Big else. Big this day. is going to be something else. <laughs> And I'm going to start with saying hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to the Lab Reports. Welcome, everyone, to this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's a Genova podcast, and it's called The Lab Report, where we talk all things functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Yeah, and if you like what you hear, you should go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show. You can download, share with your friends, rate Rate and review. review. And contact us. Yeah, podcast at gdx.net. If you have an email, you got a question, you got some mm-hmm. feedback, yeah. maybe you just have a thought, a thought of the day <laughs> for a question of the day. You yeah. can email podcast at gdx.net. Send your emails there. Mm. Well, we are both pretty excited about today. Can't you tell? Well, you know, in the past couple of episodes, we've been really focused on ketosis. Yeah. We did episodes on paleo. Yeah. We did some on the Mediterranean diet. I mean, we're sort of hitting all these different diets to offer every side, all kinds of information, just kind of putting it out there in the functional medicine space. And today we're talking carnivore diet. Cool. Yeah. This is going to be fun. We had on Mark Sisson and we asked him a couple questions about carnivore diet. And he Mm -hmm. was like, you know, this guy, Dr. Paul Saladino, he really knows his stuff and he's got some really compelling arguments about Mm -hmm. carnivore diet. Since then, started looking into him and... Holy moly, this guy knows really his stuff. Yeah. And so uh, I think this episode is going to put a lot of question marks in some brains. M- you might have a little bit of difficulty swallowing some of the nose to tail concepts. Oh, I see what you did there. But again, in functional medicine it is somewhat controversial, but it's one of those times where you just stop and let's let's just really rethink what we're learning and what we think. And he's so well researched and so well spoken that I actually am really excited about speaking to him. Yeah, and let's hear out all sides yeah. so that we can have an informed conversation. That's right. And then we can get even closer to the root cause of people's conditions. Yeah, and without further ado, let's call him up. So, Patty. Yeah. Today. I know. We have on Dr. Saladino. Oh, I know. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Saladino, if in case you haven't heard of him. If you live under a rock, maybe. Right. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diets. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous podcasts, including The Minimalists, The Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, The Dr. Gundry Podcast, The Ben Greenfield Podcast, Dr. Mercolo, Health Theory, Mark Bell's Power Project, and many others. Including The Lab Report. Right. He has also (laughs) appeared on The Doctor's TV Show and released... The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet in February of this year. And with all of that, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Saladino, for joining us here. 
Well, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Well, before we get into the carnivore diet, if anyone has heard you educate either on your podcast or on the many podcasts you appear, they'll know, they'll get to know that you have a tremendous library of biochemistry stored in your brain. And you're a conventionally trained medical physician MD, and most of those MDs don't have the biochemistry that you have. So what fueled your passion to take your medical career in this direction? I think that I've had a non-traditional path, and it's always been in my blood to do things a little differently. And I mean, I took a bunch of time off after college, and I was a physician assistant in cardiology before I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona. And I just always kind of seen things a little differently. I think it's just all <laughs> the time that I spent skiing and climbing and exploring. I, I just approach things differently than, than many around me. I, I've got a lot of really brilliant colleagues, and, but I think that the mainstream medical education doesn't always teach us to look at the root cause. And yep. that's always been the most fascinating thing for me. I think that I probably, an en- I'm an engineer at heart. Mm-hmm. or at least a problem solver in that perspective. And so throughout my education, I've always been interested in how do I get more granular? How do I get deeper? In college, I studied biology to start. And then I thought, no, I want to go a level deeper. And I studied chemistry. And I thought, no, I want to go more to physics. And then I thought, oh, too deep. I lost it. I'm gonna go back to like, I want to go back to like organic chemistry and biochemistry. And I kind of found some, some like middle ground there. But the biochemistry is just fascinating to me because of the way it works with so much nutrition. And I think that idea of nutritional biochemistry runs so much of who we are as people, mm-hmm. certainly the microbiome does as well, but the molecular level of medicine is fascinating. And so I think that a lot of us in the medical sphere learned this stuff in medical school, but didn't really integrate it in, yeah. in a clinical way. We were forced to learn Krebs cycle intermediates. We were forced to learn about the folate cycle and the folate trap, but it wasn't until after medical school that I came back to it a second time and really realized how it all had clinical applications, but it's been fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially sure. in functional medicine, that personalized approach, right? That The metabolic fingerprint. Yeah, and re- I mean, that's essentially where we're talking about root cause medicine. Right. And, you know, from there, you have taken that to kind of a, a new step. And for those who are unfamiliar, you wrote the book, The Carnivore Code, and are an advocate for the carnivore diet. So can you give us a little bit of the 30,000-foot view of what the carnivore diet is and kind of how you arrived at using the carnivore diet as a modality? Yeah, there definitely was a little bit of cognitive dissonance in my own mind along my journey because, like I said, I was a physician assistant in cardiology. I was, I had a paleolithic type diet for many years, but personally, a paleo, an organic paleo diet didn't solve my own autoimmune issues. I had asthma and eczema throughout my whole life, Hmm. and it just wasn't cutting it. I had really bad eczema when I was in medical school. It, It interfered with my training in martial arts. It interfered with jujitsu. And it, I became septic at one point because of impetigo. Oh. And oh. then in Jeez. residency, again, I had some massive flares of eczema. And I thought, you know, I'm just not, there is something going wrong here within my body. And I, I believe that a, a major trigger for this autoimmunity could be the foods that I'm eating. But my paradigm says that I'm eating the foods that are most ancestrally consistent. Is it possible that there are still foods in my diet that are triggering an immune reaction? So I really had to re-examine this. And when I came to the idea or the just the hypothesis that perhaps plants with many of their defense chemicals, which we can talk about, were triggering my immune system. It was immediately met with this kind of internal dialogue around, but what about all of the good things in plants that I've been told about? What about fiber and what about polyphenols? What about all these magical plant compounds that within functional medicine spheres, education kind of says, these are valuable. You need these. So I had to kind of question those norms. And I, as I let plants go from my diet, I quickly found that I felt better in almost every imaginable way from a mood perspective, from a 
an athletic recovery perspective, certainly from an autoimmune inflammatory perspective, my eczema resolved completely. And, and I began a rabbit hole type journey over two years ago saying, how can all of these things that I've been told be so wrong in general or wrong in my case? But, you know, what I've come to now after writing the book was just kind of my, it's my thesis. It's my explanation of all of these things that we've been told may not be as canonically true as we've been led to believe. And yeah. it, it, there's a lot of questions that come out of that. What about fiber? What about polyphenols? Mm-hmm. I saw it firsthand in my own life. And then I had to kind of do all the research to back it up because it really flies in the face of both mainstream and, quote, mainstream functional medicine, which right. is almost right. an oxymoron. Right. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting position. Well, you are certified in functional medicine by IFM, and you're familiar with their plant based approaches to health and you spend time kind of rebuking some of these commonly held beliefs and you know it's always interesting in our space when someone challenges the norm right it's always good to shake things up and really just question what we're doing and the carnivore diet itself not surprisingly can be a bit polarizing within the integrative space so can you speak to your concerns with plant-based diets and this concept of plant toxicity well, are you asking specifically about my concerns with plant-based diets or are you asking about plant toxicity? Which would you like me to address? Yeah, like the plant toxicity piece of this. Okay, because I think that there are two pieces to that. I have massive concerns about a plant-based diet based on nutritional adequacy. And that's a, that's a separate conversation around specific nutrients that are found only in animal foods in any appreciable or biologically available quantities and forms. But, but around the plant-based toxins, I think that that is probably the crux of the issue for people. And if anyone has studied botany or is familiar with the realm of plants, it's not a question of whether plants have toxins. It's the question of how many and how humans react to them and how good we as humans have truly evolved to be at detoxifying these toxins. So if we back up a second, you can think about the way that plants and animals are different and just ecosystems biology, just zoology, go back to college and you realize that every ecosystem has a balance. It's a web. And you pull on one part of the web and another part of the web is going to move. You pull mm-hmm. on a separate part of the web and the web shifts in a different direction. So that in any ecosystem on the planet Earth, there are plants and animals and insects and fungi and birds eat mosquitoes and mosquitoes feed on blood from mm-hmm. animals. And, mm-hmm. and in terms of plants, you know, plants eat, plants eat, you know, plants have fungus associated with their roots and they degrade biomatter. The fungus in their roots sometimes helps minerals become available for the plants. The animals eat the plants, they poop on the ground, the soil becomes more fertile and more plants can grow. So there is this interplay between plants and animals and predators and prey. And always between a predator and a prey, there's some degree of symbiosis as well. If the predator overeats the prey, then the predator dies because it has nothing to feed on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so many of the predator and prey cycles in ecosystems show kind of some kind of a balance. The prey has to have some way of defending itself from the predator. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're looking at a lion on the savanna desert, it's not, it's not hunting gummy bears. It's not <laughs> hunting, you know, like, it's not hunting things that are, that are just easy to go kill. Right. It's hunting things that run away from it. It's hunting things like water buffalo that can sometimes attack it back. It's hunting things that are part of an ecosystem. Animals that prey on each other have defenses. They can bite and kick and run. Right. Plants are in a different situation. They're rooted in the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm standing outside my house in the sun right now, and I'm looking at a bamboo forest, and that bamboo is completely, it's completely helpless. I could walk over there with a machete and just chop it down. Uh-huh. And if a panda bear happens to be wandering through Austin, Texas, and wants to chomp on that bamboo, 
there's nothing to stop it from doing that right. except all of these myriad compounds that this myriad collection of plants have developed over 500 million years to create this delicate balance, this delicate interplay between plants and animals to say, hey, don't overconsume me. If you overconsume me, I'm going to make you sick. I'm going to mess up your hormones. I'm hmm. going to prevent you from becoming fertile or reproducing, or I'm going to give you stomach ache. There's a delicate balance. Even within herbivorous relationships between animals and plants, it's pretty clear that plants are not consumed without some regard to the individual toxins in those plants by those animals. And so the presence of toxins in plants is natural. It's how plants have evolved to defend themselves. It's yeah. what plants have done to be a part of this cycle of life. And this has been happening for, like I said, 500 million years. And people will be aware of this. And so then we think, all right, well, what have humans been doing with plants? How many plants have humans been eating? And how well evolved are we to eat these toxins or to, to really detoxify these things? And therein lies the greatest question. How good is our CYP450 system in any individual to detoxify these things? And is it possible that some people are just not very good at detoxifying these things? They're going to be much more triggered either at a gut epithelial level by these plant toxins, or they're just not going to be very good at detoxifying these either at first phase one or phase two metabolism, and that these toxins are going to move through into our body and cause some metabolic havoc. But mm. the underlying point is that plants have toxins. They've used these for millions of years to deter animals, fungi, insects. We took this really sharp right turn away from our primate ancestors a few million years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's some pretty good anthropologic evidence that I talk about in my book to suggest that for the last two million plus years, the majority of our diet has actually been animals. Mm -hmm. And we may not really be that good at all at detoxifying these plant compounds. And then the question becomes, well, why would we eat plants in the first place unless we're starving? Hmm. And yeah. what role within an ideal human diet do plants actually serve? The hypothesis that I'm suggesting is that throughout our evolution, when we became good hunters, and we can see a clear correlation between an increased hunting of animals and a huge increase in the rate of growth of our brain around 2 million years ago, there are these Acheulean bifacial tools that show up. There's evidence for mass graves. There's evidence for butchering of animals. Everything points to the fact that 2 million years ago, when our brains suddenly began to expand rapidly mm -hmm. and changing the course of our history of hominids, tripling in size over the ensuing 2 million years, that happened because we started eating animals and eating a lot of them. Hmm. That's fascinating. There's lots of research in that rabbit hole as well. But the flip side is that what if when we did that, we didn't really need to eat plants as a critical part of our diet. What if plants have always been throughout hominid evolution, just a fallback food, just a survival mm -hmm. food that hmm. we can detoxify a little bit, but there's really nothing in plants that's uniquely valuable for humans. And they really are causing us more trouble than they're worth in a lot of cases. So that's this different perspective. Yeah. If we're saying, and we can unpack the ideas around polyphenols and hormesis sure. and all these other arguments, yeah. Yeah. but the, the, the highest level, and I, don't, I think I went a little bit more granular than 30,000 feet. <laughs> the, highest level is, the highest level is really that plants have toxins and we should not assume that they're benevolent. It's not this Willy Wonka factory of candy where everything could just walk around. And I mean, most people listening to this will have been camping and will know that in your backyard, if you have a forest or wherever you are, if you just reach down and scoop up and take a handful of plants and just start eating them, you're going to feel pretty rotten pretty fast. Plants are not benevolent in and of themselves, by and large. And they're full of these toxins that they've used to kind of create this distancing with animals. And we have to ask ourselves this question, what is the utility of plants in human diet? 
And is it possible that some people are much more sensitive to the toxins in plants? Yeah. And is it possible we've really been told a completely inverted story about the role that these, these uh, foods might play in our diet? Well, and with that, you know, I, I think that's all really, really fascinating. And there's a lot to, to unpack there. And I think the first place that my mind naturally goes in, in hearing that is there is this sort of presumption that plants are in general benign, if not benevolent. And so what with respect to what, what would you say about the research around phytonutrients and their health effect and the fact that we think of phytonutrients in general, or at least we've been taught to think that phytonutrients in general are free radical scavenging, or at least they have interactions with our own endogenous free radical or antioxidant system. And, and what is your thoughts on, on phytonutrients, polyphenols? Yeah, I think that they're, you ever seen that movie, like, what's the movie, The Usual Suspects? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With uh, Kaiser Soze. Yeah. 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 Right? And they're kind of looking at that line above criminals and they're like, who is Kaiser Soze? <laughs> and I, that's, that's what I think of with these. It's like, we're looking at these molecules and we're all thinking that they're good for us. We're yeah. all thinking. And what happens in the end of the movie? It's like, oh, he fooled everybody, right? Yeah. He's huh. walking down the street. He doesn't have a limp. He fooled everyone into thinking that he was not the villain when he actually was. And so, yeah, I, this, is a, this is a great jumping off point. I think that the narrative we've been told about phytonutrients is wrong from the start. And I don't mm. think there's any such thing as phytonutrients. And this is apostasy, I know. And most people are listening to this and they're just losing their right. minds. Yeah. Brains are exploding. Like, oh, the challenge traditional dogma. <laughs> they can, they can send the emails to me. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so you think about, like, what are these so-called phytonutrients. That's just a term that we've made up. Like that doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking generally about plant chemicals and some of them have a polyphenolic structure. Some of them are like isothiocyanates, mm -hmm. which are not polyphenolic. Those are like the brassica molecules like right. sulfurophane and allyl isothiocyanate that are present in a variety of compounds. So we think about things like polyphenolics, which is a broad term and can include tannins and all sorts of flavonoids are polyphenolic and then isothiocyanates, and many other molecules. Well, the first thing to realize is that, I'll ask you guys this question. How many polyphenolic molecules are created endogenously in human biochemistry? None that I'm aware of. Mm, mm, no. Not a single one. Yeah. Huh. There's no molecule that I've ever been able to find in the human biochemistry that has multiple aromatic rings in it. So there's no polyphenols huh. in human biochemistry, which is interesting just to start, right? Okay. Now, secondly, we're looking at these polyphenols, a good example might be curcumin because sulfurophane is an isothiocyanate. We can talk about that one. Curcumin or resveratrol. Let's mm -hmm. use those as our model polyphenols. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Because those are accepted to be like widely beneficial and right. touted as beneficial. Right. So if you look at curcumin, it's this polyphenolic molecule thing. And people would say, that's a phytonutrient. It's been shown in studies to have this anti-inflammatory effect. But this is where the things get a little sticky. Just like a molecule of curcumin has been shown to have a benefit somewhere, my fear is that what we've not been paying attention to is the package insert for these molecules, the collaterally damaging side effects of curcumin that no one ever tells us about because these are not regulated by the FDA and they're not required to do trials that talk about the side effects, nor are they required to include a package insert like they would be for lisinopril, metoprolol, pioglitazone, the drug du jour, whatever drug you want to choose. You go to the pharmacist and it has a package insert of all the side effects. Oh, it caused leukopenia in 1% of people. And hey, look, linazolid is going to cause agranulocytosis. Well, when you take a molecule of curcumin, you're not told any of the side effects. So again, 
we've assumed this molecule is completely benevolent. And yet, there are no polyphenolic molecules in human biochemistry. And it's replant. And it doesn't participate in human biology. So why do we think it's benevolent? If you look at the research specifically with curcumin, what you'll find, if you dig just below the surface, is that there are many side effects. Packaging curcumin is large. And it's scary. Curcumin affects topoisomerase. It affects P53, which is a tumor suppressor gene. It can affect the herd channel, which has to do with potassium trafficking. It can affect so many of these processes in the human body. And we're saying, wait a minute, why don't you me that curcumin can affect the winding and unwinding of DNA? That it can affect the turn on and off of a major tumor suppressor gene that can affect the potassium channel involved in heart stuff. Mm-hmm. That's very strange. And then the list goes on and on for curcumin. There are many of these effects that are demonstrated to be quite negative for this molecule, but no supplement manufacturer is required to give you those because it's not regulated by the FDA. But we shouldn't be surprised because it's a foreign molecule to a biochemistry. There is no such thing as phytonutrients. There's no such thing. They're not Mm. vitamins and minerals. If you look at our biochemistry as wheels and levers and cogs, you insert a riboflavin molecule, and that riboflavin molecule is very very crucial to our biochemistry. It's It's going to allosterically affect CHFR enzyme and affect the efficiency with which MCHFR converts 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate to L5-methylfolate. Right. But there's nothing like that for curcumin in the same way. There's no requirement hmm. for curcumin in the human body because it doesn't participate intrinsically in the biochemistry. Yeah. It's not a vitamin or a mineral. And this hmm. idea of phytonutrients is a made-up term that's like the usual. So we've got all other plant molecules just don't play well with our biochemistry. And with both, with both curcumin and resveratrol, I would argue that the benefits are redundant. You don't need those benefits. You can get those benefits in other ways. Okay. The whole idea around curcumin drives me crazy. Yeah. Why are we taking an exogenous plant compound to deal with inflammation? Why are we not looking for the source of the inflammation? Right. Inflammation is not a curcumin deficiency. Sure. Right. So that's a redundant effect, and no one is talking about the side effects of these molecules. With resveratrol, it's very easy to turn on your sirtuins. You just fast. Or you do a low-carb diet temporarily, hmm. that'll turn on your sirtuins too. And I was quite surprised here that David Sinclair was not aware of ketogenic physiology, nor was he aware of the changes in the NAD, the NADH ratios that happen with ketogenic diets. So why would we take a molecule like resveratrol that has a redundant effect, a non-unique effect in the human body? It's very easy to turn on your sirtuins, but also has these probably very negative side effects that have been clearly demonstrated in multiple studies, but we're never told about them. It's the risk versus benefit doesn't line up for any of these compounds. And I'm happy to talk about the isothiocyanates as well. But that's just illustrated. And I think it has to do with the fact that these are foreign molecules. There are no molecules that look like isothiocyanates in our human biology. Mm-hmm. These are not vitamins. They're not minerals. There's no such thing as a phytonutrient. These but, are plant pigments yeah. or plant defense chemicals. And we've been told that there's something else all along. Hmm. But then doesn't that then take you down that road you mentioned earlier about hormesis? Like, is there a purpose? Would it be around that concept of hormesis? Concept of hormesis comes from radiology. It really comes from just like medicine in the physical plane of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, radiologists have always thought like a little bit of radiation to your DNA may be a good thing. And Mm -hmm. I think that this concept has been incorrectly applied to molecules. They're not the same. There's no such thing as molecular hormesis per se. It's been made up. This concept of xenohormesis is really, it's a construct, mm-hmm. just like phytonutrients. We, we can't say that it exists for sure. And it's different in some pretty critical ways, which I'll talk about. So it goes back to what I was saying earlier. The benefits from plant molecules, I believe, are 
twofold different. Number one, I believe they're different because their effects are redundant. I've never found a plant molecule that did something in the human body that you couldn't achieve by living well in other ways. Mm -hmm. It's certainly possible, like I said, to turn your sirtuin genes on by fasting, by eating a low-carb diet. And it's certainly possible to correct inflammation by correcting the cause of the inflammation. No one on the earth has a curcumin deficiency. Curcumin is not a vitamin or a mineral. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about sulforaphane, and we can talk about the isothiocyanates in more detail in a moment, if we're talking about sulforaphane, it's the same equation. There's plenty of data to suggest that you can have a very robust antioxidant system. And as you guys know, we can test that very easily with a NutriEval, and I can tell you about the results that I've seen with that. Mm -hmm. But you can look at things like 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, mm -hmm. or you can look at malondialdehyde, or you can look at lipid peroxides, right. or you can look at a T-bars test, or you can look at any of these indices of immunologic activation or DNA damage or overall antioxidant status, oxidized to reduce glutathione. There's lots of evidence that there's no unique benefit to fruits and vegetables in these situations, and I'm happy to go into that. And there's no unique benefit to these plant compounds in the situations. These plant compounds have these redundant benefits. And that might not be a big deal if they didn't have a downside, if they didn't come with a package insert, but they do. They do, and we're never told about that. And so what we're getting here is a redundant benefit with an ignored side effect. So the point is, why would you take sulforaphane to increase your glutathione if your glutathione is already at an optimal level and accept all of the downsides of a molecule like sulforaphane, resveratrol, curcumin, whatever molecule de jure you want to choose? Right. Mm -hmm. It's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think this idea of molecular hormesis is myopic and ignores hmm. all of this. There's no such thing as a completely benevolent plant molecule. Hmm. Got it. So ultimately looking to the root cause of why somebody might have lower levels of glutathione as and, and getting to those particular, why somebody has inflammation and, and getting to those diet lifestyle factors that might be driving that as compared to taking something as you're saying that might have a package insert. What is your biggest- Would you give someone, would you give someone ibuprofen or a leave for an inflammatory condition? You, yeah. you might, but you would have to accept that, that you're treating a symptom and you're going to give yeah, them other side. Exactly. You're going to cause GI ulcer, you're right. going to cause- nephropathy. Right. Right. And yeah. so is, is, is a leave what we give people for coronary artery disease? No. Right, right. And you know, like is it's the same thing. Would you give someone prednisone for coronary artery disease? There's plenty of ways in medicine that we know of to abrogate inflammation. Right. Would you give someone Humira for sinusitis? Right. You know, would right. You give someone Humira for calcification of the arteries? No. Right. Mm. This is not what we do. Right. <laughs> right. Know? It well, work that way. What are your biggest concerns about some of the side effects, some of these, these plant toxins? What are, how are they wreaking havoc in, in the system? I think that they're wreaking havoc in all the ways that I talked about, and they're yeah. things that haven't even been studied. The, the most widely studied problem with these molecules is DNA breaks at the level of the genome, the nuclear genome, and perhaps even the mitochondrial genome. So there's a large set of studies that I reference in the book, looking at the clastogenic properties, which is the ability of these molecules to break DNA for many of these plant molecules. And in fact, I reference a paper in the book by Bruce Ames, a pretty well-known researcher yep. from mm -hmm. the 90s. And the mm -hmm. title of the paper is Plant Pesticides 99.99% All Natural. And so what he's saying in the paper is that if we're worried about pesticide consumption, we need to realize that by weight... One one thousandth of what we're eating is pesticides that are sprayed on plants, which are also not good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the, the pesticides that plant makes are 1,000 times more prevalent. <laughs> 1,000 <laughs> times more prevalent. Right. And, and, and he has a chart that lists 39 known toxins in cabbage. And very few of these have been studied. 
We right. don't even know. Most of them, many of them are isothiocyanates, which are very clearly known to affect iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid. Mm-hmm. If it's not sulforaphane, we can talk about goitrin, which is a much yeah. more potent goitrogen. Right. And that's present in many brassicate vegetables and is very avidly going to inhibit iodine uptake at the level of the thyroid. These, these compounds are clearly toxic to humans. And the intent of the plants is very clear here. If you keep eating me, I am going to mess with your thyroid and I'm going to destroy your reproductive ability. It's Mm -hmm. not a question of what the plant is doing. The plant is not saying, here, have an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. You know, you're munching on my head, but I'm (laughs) going to give you a little. That's not what it's doing. Right. This is is totally the usual suspects. We have it all wrong. We just are not clear on who Kaiser Soze is in this situation. Right. Until we can demonstrate a benefit in a myopic study looking at DNA because they're going to increase glutathione in the short term. In the long term, with fruit and vegetable intervention and depletion studies, it's very clearly documented that many, many fruits and vegetables per week or per day does not consistently result in improved markers of oxidative stress, DNA damage, or immunologic activation. I'm happy to talk about those studies as well. Hmm. But it's, it's, it's this nuanced perspective that is very contrary to, to, the, to the functional medicine narrative and really comes up against a lot of our conditioning. Okay, well... With that, let's bring up another trigger word, because in functional medicine, fiber comes up a lot as it relates to a healthy microbiome, the need to ferment fiber to feed the microbiome. What do you say around the concept of that need for fiber in plants? Right. So I'll just be frank with you. (laughs) We would not expect anything less, sir. (laughs) In, In that statement, there were a number of unsupported ideas that get parroted frequently. Uh-huh. What is a healthy microbiome? Can you define it? That's a great point. We, d- we actually debate that. Like right. what's healthy there, here? What's right. healthy to We don't even have a, a sense of what a healthy microbiome is. Some people would say that increased fiber has been in, shown to be associated with increased levels of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. And everyone knows that those are very healthy things, except that if you look at one of the model populations of alpha diversity of a microbiome, which is really one of the measures that we use to say you have a healthy diverse microbiome, that would be the Hadza. And the Hadza don't have bifidobacteria. So someone please tell me how critical bifidobacteria is when Hmm. one of these free living hunter gatherer cultures don't even have it in their microbiome. Hmm. And they don't get inflammatory bowel disease at increased rates. And Mm -hmm. we would point to them and say they're a paragon of microbial diversity. So the idea that we need fiber for a healthy microbiome is just sort of, that's just a, that's an indefensible statement. That's just a truism that is circular and means nothing because we don't even really know what a healthy gut microbiome is. And it, it, it's probably going to take us generations to figure that out and machine learning. Mm-hmm. I think we can pretty clearly say what an unhealthy microbiome is. But if somebody doesn't have GI symptoms, if they don't have gas bloating, constipation, or inflammation, if their calprotectin is low, if they don't have bleeding, Who's to say that their microbiome is any less healthy than anyone else's, especially if their microbial diversity looks pretty good, Mm -hmm. just because they have a little more of a bile acid tolerant organism or a little less lactobacillus or a little little more bifidobacteria. We don't have any idea if other species can fill that ecological niche or can fill it in a better way. Or if bacteria in our gut are exchanging DNA with each other and one can die off with another. I mean, there are thousands of species. It's one of the most complex ecosystems we could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And for us to say, we need fiber for a healthy gut microbiome presupposes an appreciation for the microbiome, which I think is very just, it's just disingenuous. It's just a, it's a fallacy. Yeah. Mm. I think what's being suggested in that statement is that you need fiber for a diverse microbiome. 
And then we have a, an objective measure, but that statement is patently false. Mm -hmm. And that's been shown multiple times that you can give people fiber and their alpha diversity doesn't increase. And there's actually a study done at Harvard University where they had people on a plant-based diet and a carnivore diet for an entire week, which we know is plenty of time for the microbiome to shift. And guess what? People on the carnivore diet did not see any decline in the alpha diversity of their gut and the beta diversity increased. So anyone that says you need fiber for a high alpha diversity, I would challenge them to show me a single study which shows that because interventional studies, which I think are much more valuable than epidemiologic studies, clearly show that is not the case. But people want to point to epidemiologic studies that compare kids in Burkina Faso to, mm -hmm. you know, to yeah. urban Italy and say, well, look, these rural kids eat more fiber and they have a more diverse microbiome. And these kids in Italy have a less diverse microbiome and they eat less fiber. Well, that's committing like the cardinal sin of medicine. You can't right. make correlations. Right. Causation. Right. That's yeah. silly. Right. 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 Anyone right. that does that is just like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like you can generate a hypothesis and you can go test it. And guess what? It's been tested and it doesn't ring true. Is it possible that the kids in Burkina Faso are just not eating processed foods? Right. Mm -hmm. Is it possible mm -hmm. that the kids in Burkina Faso are getting more soil-based organisms right. because they're playing right. dirt? Right. Is it possible the kids in Burkina Faso are having more sunlight and that the sun is affecting their gastrointestinal microbiome sure. in a positive way? Sure. There are myriad number of things that can go into this microbial diversity. And so to base it all upon that, I think is a, is a very shaky position and mm -hmm. people are left with very unsure footing when you actually challenge them with the interventional research wow. with regard to short chain fatty oh, acids. You beat me I to think, <laughs> what's that? I said you, you beat me he to was it. just going to ask you this. I know I'm, I'm, I'm quick to the punch, my man. <laughs> good. With regard to short chain fatty acids, everyone wants to get hyper-focused on butyrate, but there's also other short chain fatty acids. And I think this is where the biochemistry is king. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's butyric acid, there's isobutyric acid, there's propionic acid, there's acetic acid. There are many short chain fatty acids that can be made in our gut. And in fact, exclusively from animal foods, we can still make short chain fatty acids. Well, why do we care about short chain fatty acids in the first place? I believe people care about short chain fatty acids because the colonic epithelial cells right. are using the short chain fatty acids as a fuel source, which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. But Notice I said short chain fatty acids, plural. Our guts don't rely exclusively on butyrate. And it's not like the butyrate production goes to zero when you have a fiberless diet. Mm -hmm. It's much more nuanced than that. And simply just stuffing fiber into someone is not the way to increase butyrate mm -hmm. formation in the gut, as you know, because the oxidation state of the gut is very important. If the gut is unhealthy, you can make a whole bunch more butyrate in the gut, but it can't actually move across the colonic epithelial lining. So people who have high butyrate on these tests can actually have, that can be a marker of gastrointestinal inflammation. But if you look at it with a myopic perspective, you're saying, great, you're making lots of butyrate. Well, maybe the reason you have lots of butyrate is because your gut is so inflamed and those, those colonic epithelial cells can't actually use it. Huh, in that case, yeah. you might actually want to get short chain fatty acids from your blood yeah. in the form of a ketone known as beta hydroxybutyrate. Right. Right. Or you might want to get other short chain fatty acids or figure out what's causing the inflammation in your gut, what's right. causing there to be so much change in the anaerobic environment of the colon and causing it to shift so that the colon can't use the butyrate. Just stuffing more butyrate or stuffing more prebiotic fiber that makes butyrate into a gut that's already inflamed rarely works. Yeah. And there's mm -hmm. plenty of studies, again, which I talk about in the book, which show that isobutyrate, which can be formed by protein, especially collagen, can be used in exactly the same way as butyrate. And many may know that butyrate has signaling roles in the gut. Yep. It actually touches receptors on the surface of the colonic epithelial cells. Well, guess what? So does isobutyrate. And sometimes mm -hmm. 
it actually does it even more avidly than butyrate itself. So there's this interchange and our guts are very malleable. And I think that there absolutely would have been times, in fact, in my opinion, the majority of the time that we would not have lots of fiber. And the gut knows how to do this. It's been demonstrated in multiple species that we can easily ferment collagen into short chain fatty acids. And if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, which I think is valuable for humans in a cyclic manner, you can get short chain fatty acids from your blood in the form of beta hydroxybutyrate. Right. In fact, when butyrate moves across the cell membrane of the colonic epithelial cells, it's transformed into beta hydroxybutyrate. So if you can get beta hydroxybutyrate from your blood, you don't even need any from your gut. So again, it's just this myopic perspective. Everybody's hyper-focused. Yeah. And I think that everyone, it's just this thing, it's just this idea, these ideas around what a healthy gut is that have been parroted over and over. And I, I will admit to you guys with a little bit of just the smallest amount of consternation that I, I've, I've answered that question probably a hundred times at this point, you know, yeah. uh-huh. it's like, uh-huh. people just don't get it. I'm just right. like, I'll just keep answering it and showing <laughs> you guys the research, you know, and I'm happy to share it with another audience, but it's, it's very similar, you know, and then with fiber, the other things that come up are what about constipation? And mm-hmm. we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to, or what about diverticulosis or what about cancer? Yeah, yeah. We can go all those places, but I assure you the research doesn't support a role for fiber in any of them. So I'm happy to go wherever you guys want to go. <laughs> no, it's interesting. And I was going to ask you this question too, and, and really just kind of get your thoughts on this, because we talk a lot about how dysbiosis is this umbrella term that we really have no characterization underneath it. And what we're trying to do with a lot of our stool testing is figure out bacterial patterns that are associated with biomarkers we know are problematic. So for example, the inflammatory markers like calprotectin that you mentioned, what is a, what is a pattern of bacteria that's going to predict the increase of inflammation in the GI tract as it relates to, to calprotectin? And so we're trying to piece out, and and I guess I'm asking a question of, down the road, I see that as being a little bit more valuable than just saying, give this diet, and then we'll see what happens to the microbiome and call that good. I think we should see what happens to symptoms. Yeah. I, I think that this may sound like a truism, and maybe this is exactly what you're driving at, but I think the microbiome you have when you're healthy is a healthy microbiome. And symptomatically, I fear that we get overly worried about the granular level of species in the gut. And I've had lots of conversations with people who really geek out in the gut and they say, oh, you don't have enough rosemary mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. you have too much, you have too much, you know, too much Vibrio vulnificus or you have too much of this, you know, bile acid tolerant organism. And you're going, what are you talking about? This person feels totally well. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they have beautiful, they have freaking like, they have angelic poops every day. Right. They don't mm-hmm. smell, they don't fart. Like, why would you do anything with that? And <laughs> yeah. I think that we can just go by symptoms more than anything. And certainly if somebody is not symptomatically good from a GI perspective, this would be gas, bloating, constipation, bleeding, whatever, then yeah, start to look there and see if there are things that we can, tri- we can move on. But I'll tell you what, in my experience, we're just not there yet. Yeah. We're just not there yet. And we have to pull back to 30,000 feet. And the most valuable interventions that I have seen are interventions that are not terribly granular. It's, hey, you have SIBO, which we've probably wrongly characterized as small intestinal, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and is actually probably small intestinal dysbiosis or loss of diversity in the small intestine mm-hmm. rather than a reproducible amount of high colonic or high jejunal aspirate counts of bacteria. And I think in, in most of those cases, you just say, why don't you just get rid of fiber for a little while and see if your symptoms get better? And I'll tell you what, guys, more often than not, they get better and people yeah. are just left they're, they're slack-jawed. They Flat just map. can't even yeah. believe yeah. how much better they feel. Yeah. It doesn't solve it all the time, but that's a great place to start. And it doesn't have to do with the fancy probiotic or anything. Right. And I don't even have to repeat their, their GI effects or repeat their, you know, their testing because they're symptomatically better. And that's what we really care about. Like treat the patient, not the labs, right? Sure. Mm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and kind of with that too, you know, because the labs are interesting and, you know, I know you've done some labs here and there, and you also had a really great podcast exchange with Dr. Chris Masterjohn, which I've listened to several times just to keep learning. <laughs> but, <keep> up. <laughs> you know, regarding everything from ancestral eating patterns and vitamin C to glutathione production, oxidative stress. And vitamin C is one of the things that you keep getting asked about as far as, well, what about vitamin C in somebody who's on carnivore? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing to know is that animal foods have vitamin C. And if you're not eating spam, you won't get scurvy. <laughs> eating animal foods. And that's been demonstrated multiple times. There's a great study from the 1930s, or I think it's early 1940s, conscientious objectors, and they gave them scurvy. And then they looked at different doses of vitamin C that were necessary to clinically correct scurvy with what they knew in 1940. Doses as low as 10 milligrams did fine. And so the debate that I've been having with a number of people then is, all right, 10 milligrams a day is enough to correct scurvy. Anyone eating fresh animal products will get 10 milligrams of vitamin C easily. Mm -hmm. And we just do not see clinical scurvy in populations that are carnivore. This is just, you know, like the populations that I work with and people that I have talked to on Instagram and these kind of more loosely connected communities. So there's nobody getting scurvy unless they're just eating spam and nobody would advocate for eating processed red meat. That's a horrible idea. Yeah. Now beyond that, the argument is, well, okay, that prevents scurvy, but is that an ideal from an oxidative stress perspective. And I think that's exactly the question we should be asking. And Mm -hmm. then the question is, okay, I'm probably getting way more than 10 milligrams of vitamin C per day with my diet because I eat organ meats and I eat probably a pound and three quarters of of grass-fed beef per day and I eat some egg yolks. And so when I estimate it, I'm I'm usually getting 60 to 70 milligrams of vitamin C per day, which is getting close to actually the RDA for vitamin C from animal foods. And this is vitamin C from animal foods, which we're not even convinced is the same as vitamin C from plant foods. It may even be more bioavailable or less resistant to degradation with heat. But Hmm. ultimately the arbiter would be, if I could show, and I asked Chris this question, I said, what would you measure? You know, I've measured my glutathione. It's completely normal. I've measured my lipid peroxides. They're very low. I've measured my 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine. It's very low. What else would anyone want you to measure with vitamin C? Like, you can measure the oxidative stress markers. You can measure all of this stuff and see that, you know, moderate intakes of vitamin C appear to be just fine. And yet it's essentially canon. It's essentially dogma that the more vitamin C, the better until you're having diarrhea. Right. Like, why do we assume that it's okay to take 5,000 milligrams or even 1,000 milligrams of a compound that's then going to give you loose stool? It's clearly saying, hey, you're eating way too much vitamin C in this situation. And doses, you know, it's also been shown that excess vitamin C can cause other imbalances and people with certain genetic problems like G6PD, there's a question of whether it could cause other issues. So I just don't think that we, the whole story on vitamin C is written. Hmm. There's a quite an interesting interventional study that I talk about in the book. And this also rehashes some of the things we were talking about earlier. So the study was done in Denmark and they took two groups of, they took a group of people who were eating a small amount of fruits and vegetables per week, I think three servings per week. And they had an average of 70, 70 milligrams of vitamin C per day. And they took half of that group and they gave them about five to six times that amount of fruits and vegetables. Their vitamin C intake increased to 270 milligrams per day, pretty mm-hmm. robust by many standards. Mm-hmm. And their blood levels of vitamin C increased 30%. And they got lots of phytonutrients, quote unquote, wink, wink and lots of fiber in their diet. And I think the study was either four or eight weeks. And at the end of those four to eight weeks, they looked at a number of measures. And again, the study's linked in my book. There's over 600 references in the carnivore code. They looked at measures of oxidative stress. They looked at 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine. They looked at lipid peroxides. They looked at CRP and they looked at markers of immunologic activation. And there was no difference. Interesting. There's no difference. Hmm. 
despite a 30% increase in blood levels of vitamin C, there was no difference in the oxidative stress markers. Hmm. Despite five to six X, the amount of fruits and vegetables, there was no difference in inflammatory markers, oxidative stress, or any of these things. So what are phytonutrients actually? And I guess people could say from that study, well, maybe three servings of fruits and vegetables is enough and 70 milligrams of vitamin C is enough. Well, like I just said, I can pretty easily get close to 70 milligrams of vitamin C in a day eating nose to tail, yeah. eating mm -hmm. actual organ meats. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, there have been many studies like this where they compared even more distinct groups, groups that had no, zero fruits and vegetables compared to groups that has lots of fruits and vegetables, more than a pound a day. And some of these studies go as long as 10 to 11 weeks. And the, the findings are pretty darn consistent. Not all of them did the same illustration with vitamin C levels, but right. the findings are pretty similar that at the end of 10 to 11 weeks in these studies, there's really no difference between the zero fruit and vegetable group and the, the pound plus fruit and vegetable group in terms of oxidative stress, inflammatory markers, DNA damage, or immunologic activation. So I think that this idea of phytonutrients is like, where is it? Where's the benefit from these? I'm just not convinced that they're so beneficial. There's even one study that's been done that showed an actual, like a decremental effect, a, a worsening of oxidative stress with more fruits and vegetables. And that one's in the book as well. So it's just not very clear to me that in the absence of insulin resistance or other chronic disease, huge doses of vitamin C are valuable or even beneficial. They could potentially be harmful to humans. I mean, there's some evidence that higher doses of vitamin C are associated with more kidney stones, right. which would kind of make sense from, uh, from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, how often were we really getting 500 milligrams of vitamin C? Right. Right. So yeah. I think that the jury's still out on mm -hmm what the optimal level of vitamin C is. It's pretty darn clear that to prevent scurvy, you need a very small amount. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly very interested in the ongoing discussions around what is the optimal level, sure. but I've never been really convinced that anyone can show me that the optimal level is two to 300 milligrams a day from a, from a lab testing perspective or from a, from a clinical perspective. I joke on my Instagram, I'll post shirtless pictures and I, you know, I've, if you guys have seen me do that, I'm mm -hmm. pretty fit. Yeah. Um, and I'll say, here's my end stage polyphenol deficiency. And clearly I'm getting scurvy too. So, I mean, I really haven't had, I really haven't had substantial examples. I have really haven't had substantial amounts of polyphenols in over two years at this point. Yeah. And by most standards, I should be wasting away or have some sort of chronic disease mm. or, or burning up or, you know, my, I should, I should combust spontaneously <laughs> in, a, in a, in a, in a massive blaze of oxidative stress any moment now, but it's just not happening. And I'm, I'm really bummed out it's <laughs> that would be spectacular <laughs> i mean that would be a way to go that's a good that instagram would... feed anyway yeah yeah that would be, i'm sure i'd get followers <laughs> well i mean i guess what would you say to the, the the people that put out all the the literature or it seems like in the literature you get a lot of information about phytonutrients and there'll be a laundry list of their activities whether it's anti-neoplastic anti-angiogenic anti you know anti-inflammatory and there's this sort of laundry list of these actions that are associated with them and clinical conditions that that seem to show benefit from in positive intake of these. What do you make of of research of those those articles of research, I guess? Well curcumin is a good example there. If we return to that, people may say curcumin is anti, you know, it, it it's it's going to hurt tumor cells, but what they don't tell you is that a lot of those studies show that it hurts native cells also. And anytime I see these anti-cancer benefits, I have to kind of take them with a grain of salt and say, just because something kills a cancer cell doesn't necessarily you want to eat it. I mean, do you want to eat chemotherapy every day? Do you want to take paclitaxel all the time? What about doxorubicin? Mm -hmm. You know, so something that has benefit in cancer is a completely unique situation. 
And just because it's going to kill a cancer cell, and a lot of the mechanisms by which these things kill cancer cells is excess oxidative stress. I mean, sulforaphane has also been shown to be anti-neoplastic. Well, how do you think it's doing that? It's doing that as a pro-oxidant. And I think that we're just assuming that these are benevolent. And it's like, wait a minute, how did that cancer get there in the first place? Why did your immune surveillance fail? And all these other things. And certainly, you know, if you want to talk about treating cancer, that's a little different discussion. And we can entertain that. But in terms of prevention of cancer, we're sold this bill of goods that these compounds are somehow going to magically prevent these cancer cells from forming in our bodies. And I just think that is completely unsubstantiated. That's just very, very premature. And the question is, why did your immune system fail in the first place? Did you not have the right nutrients? Were you exposed to a carcinogenic substance, too much glyphosate, too many heavy metals? Again, we're getting back to root cause. Mm -hmm. You can't deny the, the side effects of these molecules. Is it worth sacrificing your thyroid? In some situations, it might be. And I also want people to not, I, I want to make sure that people don't believe, or I want to kind of make the case that I'm not a Luddite either. Mm-hmm. I do see value for pharmaceutical molecules. I just think it's important that we understand that whether it's a synthetic molecule or a molecule from a plant, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. And they're all going to have side effects in the human body and they should be treated in the same way and they should be cautioned in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I do think that pharmaceutical molecules, both synthetic and naturally derived, have value as medications, but not as supplements and not as food. You know, if somebody wants to take heparin because they're in the middle of a catheterization procedure, that's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's okay with me. Right. But, you know, I don't think we should be taking heparin every day. <laughs> and you don't need heparin every day to prevent your blood from clotting. Mm-hmm. And the same can be true for anything, whether it's aspirin or Aleve or ibuprofen or curcumin or sulforaphane. Like, these are not foods. These are not supplements. These right. are not things that you need to function better. They could be used as medications, but realize they have side effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those side effects are so often ignored. Yeah. And interestingly, if you look at all the old Materia Medicas, essentially all pharmaceuticals were plant medicines in their origin. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and now we've, we've put them into different um, characterizations. You know, it's like they're different houses at uh, Hogwarts. <laughs> and, you know, the pharmaceuticals are from Slytherin and the plant molecules are from Gryffindor. And it's right. like, wait a minute. <laughs> You're all the same, you know, you're all, you're all using the same magic. And many of the molecules we use today are derived from plants. I mean, aspirin is derived from a plant. And I actually think that aspirin is not benign, you know, right. it's just not a benign molecule and nor, nor is paclitaxel, which is also derived from a plant. And, mm-hmm. you know, within the psychological sphere, psilocybin is being used now with great promise, but nobody is suggesting that we should take psilocybin every day. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, molecules have effects in the human body and medicines do work. And I think that, you know, since the 1920s or the, you know, the, the great revolution around antibiotics and the promise of antibiotics, we've just come to accept all medications as, as benevolent. And so that then people realize, oh, medications aren't benevolent. And then we got kind of confused and said, well, all plants are benevolent because they're natural. And it's really the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. just need to realize they all have side effects and we, we shouldn't really need them in the best circumstances. But in the worst circumstances, yeah, I think they have value for in the short term. I recently cut my hand open. I nearly lost a finger. I was on my foil board mm-hmm. and I fell off and hit the propeller and I needed seven stitches across my palm. And I was pretty thankful that the physician at the urgent care had lidocaine for me. Sure. And so I'm not against pharmaceuticals and I don't think that these molecules can't have medicinal value. But there's a real difference between something that's a vitamin or a nutrient and something that's a medication. Do you guys understand that? I think yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's the therapeutic yeah, order. Yeah. Huge, absolutely. huge difference. And I think that, that that goes back to the usual suspects sort of metaphor that, that the, the idea of phytonutrients is, we need to challenge that. I mean, mm-hmm. this is why the discussion is happening and I love that it can just happen, but right. 
that's the conversation. Like, are we really sure that's the right, you know, a, a better characterization, characterization might be a plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are plant medicines. I think that psilocybin is a plant medicine yeah. and sulforaphane could be a plant medicine, but that's a very different thing because everybody knows you don't take medication every, every day. day. Right, right. But if you're saying it's a phytonutrient, it's like, well, you should supplement with sulforaphane for the rest of your life. And I think it's a horrible idea. Yeah. And you definitely don't want to go eating broccoli sprouts and you definitely don't want to eat broccoli seeds because they're very highly defended and it's just going to cause more harm. And then mm-hmm. people wonder why their patients aren't getting better or why, why they're feeling worse on 12 supplements. And it's like, well, because you're on berberine, curcumin, resveratrol, sulforaphane, you know, cat's claw, and you're, you're on 12 plant chemicals and they're really not good for them. And none of them is treating the root cause. Right. Right. And, and I'll tell you, Dr. Saladino, the reason Michael and I were dying to have you on the show is just to have this discussion. I mean, you think about things so differently than most people, and it's always good to challenge the process, challenge what's being taught. And I think for our audience that's listening, it's probably the first time they may have heard you or, yeah. or heard this side. And so it's why we think this is so valuable to have this conversation. And, and I'll tell you that it's just going to lead to us wanting to have you on more and more and more because we've only scratched the surface. But at the end of a lot of our interviews, we often ask kind of an off question. And it's usually something around, do you like sandwiches or what's your favorite vegetable? But that's clearly not going to work this time, Michael. Yeah. So the thing that we <laughs> the thing that we tried to think up here uh, was to to ask a question that's, you know, maybe not a layup, a question that maybe we're calling something like the fireball. What? Where, you know, the question that's so hot that it's difficult to really oh, handle. Is this new? Yeah, this is going to be new. <laughs> okay. So if that's okay, I was going to throw this out to you for the, the first fireball question, Dr. Saladino. And and the question you just is call me Paul, but yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, Paul. Here it is. The fireball. Um Uh-oh. true or false, did you adopt the carnivore diet as an elaborate denunciation of the fact that your last name starts with the first five letters salad? <laughs> <laughs> It's so great, right? That's the, that's absolutely awesome. yeah, true. True, nothing could be truer, right? And so I get asked this all the time. People, people joke, and they'll be like, "How can that guy be talking about that guy wrote the book on the carnivore diet? His last name says salad." And the the two clever retorts that I have to this okay. that also is dino, like dinosaur. Oh. it's going to be a dinosaur. Then it's then it's the carnivorous dinosaur for sure. All the right, T Rex, but I. Good one. I think that the most clever one, I think Mark Sisson told me this one, and it, <laughs> it brings us back to grade school grammar. So if you just change the grammatical structure of my last name, you could say salad, question mark, I, comma, no, exclamation, <laughs> salad, I, no. <laughs> and I think that that's, awesome. that's actually what it is. So again, it's just, you, it's, you just have to look a little bit deeper. That's what we're all about here. Challenge. I know. It's look, great. Perfect. It's great. Just look a little deeper than the surface. Salad. I, I know. No. It's great. And we've, we've actually had Mark on, on the podcast and he mentioned you. Um, yeah. It's kind of how we, we, we got you on our radar. But we can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been amazing and has literally just scratched the surface of so many other things. But what we want the audience to do is really to take this to heart, really go look for yourself. Yeah. And we're just presenting all sides of every single part of diets. And yeah. so I think it's an important 
point for for clinicians to go look for yourself. Yeah, and absolutely. Pick up the book, Carnivore Code, and you can also listen to uh, Fundamental Health Paul's podcast. And you want to talk a little bit about where else they can find you on Instagram and everywhere else? Yeah, so you can find the book at thecarnivorecodebook.com. Depending when this gets published, the second edition is available for pre-order now. So the first edition was self-published. It did so well that the book Mm. was bought by... Houghton Mifflin, we're getting much Great. broader distribution. It'll be out August the 4th, which is super exciting awesome. because I, I agree with you guys. I just want people to think for themselves. If you are doing something totally different than what I'm suggesting and you are thriving, don't change a thing. Just keep kicking ass and tell me about it. You right. know, Don't change a thing. But, but I do want to challenge the norm. And again, I'm not saying that everyone needs to eliminate all plants. The premises of this yeah. are that animal foods are wrongly vilified. Mm-hmm. They're a critical part of human nutrition and that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. And we shouldn't assume that all the molecules or the plants in general are completely benevolent. Yeah. So think about those things. And again, yeah, do read my book, please. It's really, it's my labor of love. It's got over 600 references and I welcome constructive discussion around that. My social media handle is at MD everywhere. As you said, my podcast is Fundamental Health. That would be the best place to find me, all those spots, and you can pre-order the book there. Awesome. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul. It's this was been a blast, a Paul. This was really, Thank really fun. You. And hopefully you'll consider coming back because I've got about a million got, more questions. And lists. we have yes, lists. So, much, so much biochemistry we did not explore together. So let's do that. I'd love to. All right. Thanks, guys. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have only scratched the surface. What in the world just happened? <laughs> Someone just told you there's no Santa Claus. That's what happened. Yeah, and I feel really confused. I feel alone. I kind of feel like rocking in the corner a little bit. <laughs> Don't do that. I think this is the perfect opportunity for us all just to stop and rethink and go back to literature and let's just think about it. He said there's what, like 600 articles in his book? Yeah, you, gotta, references. you better get reading, Michael. I'm going to read all those articles. Summarize those for me, please. Okay. In the meantime, I feel like this episode requires a disclaimer. Shall I? Yes. The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as diagnosis or treatment advice. Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Ross Arena. Yeah, we're going to go back to exercise as medicine for a little bit here. Why are you looking at me when you say that? No reason. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. What did you think of the fireball sound effect? I thought it was awesome. Yeah? I liked the two explosions. Was it discreet? Yeah, it was subtle. Okay. Barely notice it. You think we should use it again? We can probably just sneak it in there. People won't even notice. Yeah, you're right. No it's kind of low-key. No one will notice. Especially the guests. I mean, <laughs> they won't notice, right? No. <laughs>